Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. It's still 2020, I think, and Halloween is over and the election is kind of over. The leaves have all fallen and the sun has disappeared. To cheer things up, let's talk to Deirdre Lannan, a senior lecturer in history at Texas State University in San Marcos. Today we're going to talk about Deirdre's academic and professional background and then focus on her dissertation research into Ruth Reynolds and the fight for Puerto Rican independence in the first half of the 20th century. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Deirdre Lannan and I'm a senior lecturer at Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. Great. And can you tell us a little bit about your background? One thing I think is interesting about me is that I dropped out of college the first time to pursue a career in music. And so I was a rockabilly musician for about 15 years. And it was really fun and exciting. Um, But ultimately, I felt like I wanted to do something that required a little bit more um, intellectually and allowed me to give back a little bit more. So I went back to college and discovered a love for history. And that love for history came when I found myself in history. And I found things about people like me, um, gender issues and class issues and talking about immigrants because I'm Uh, second-generation American descended from immigrants on both sides. And so when I went back to college and I discovered this love for history, um, it just lit a fire. And I decided to, I thought I was going to get a BA and teach high school history, but I just loved researching and writing so much that I went through for a master's and then for my PhD. That's great. We're going to, and we'll talk about your PhD research here in just a minute. I did not know about the rockabilly career and I feel like I could go and talk for an hour about that because that's fascinating to me. Uh, What instruments did you play? Well, I played acoustic guitar and I wrote songs and I sang. So I fronted a band. And um, you know what's interesting, just a neat segue about that, is that that's actually one of the ways I found my my way into scholarly history was when I um, went to school at Texas State to finish my undergrad degree, they had a center for Texas music history and professors who were doing research in music history. And so it was a way for me to take my love of this kind of older uh, vernacular music form and apply it to a scholarly situation. And that really got me hooked. Well, that's very cool. That may have to be a whole separate future episode at some point. But for today, we're here to talk about your dissertation research into uh, Ruth Reynolds. And so uh, ease us into it. Who is Ruth Reynolds and why is she important? Sure. Um, Maybe I could tell you about how I discovered her. Sounds good. I was just taking um, a U.S. history research seminar in which we were encouraged to write a research paper of our own devising. And in the archive at the Briscoe Center for American History, one of the archivists um, was just asking me about what I was interested in, trying to help lead me to a topic. And I had mentioned Puerto Rico because part of my family immigrated from Puerto Rico in the early 20th century, and I was interested in that. And 
what came up was surprising. It was a folder in the collection of James and Lula Peterson Farmer. James Farmer was one of the founders of the Congress of Racial Equality, and he um, is a monster in the African-American civil rights movement, and especially that leg of it that predates the Martin Luther King Jr. era. So I was curious about why what connection he had to Puerto Rico. And when I looked at the folder, it was almost all to do with a group called um, the American League for Puerto Rico's Independence. And this name, Ruth Reynolds, appeared pretty much on every piece of paper in that folder. And as I went through the folder, I started to understand that Ruth Reynolds was a young, white, Methodist from South Dakota, um, who was a pacifist, but somehow wound up incarcerated in Puerto Rico for plotting violent revolution. So I was quite intrigued at that point. Yeah, that's quite a quite a path. <laughs> so yeah, I can see why that person why she would kind of jump out at you as an interesting topic. And so, so let's talk about her a little bit. So can you tell us a little bit about her, uh, her childhood? She said that she was born in South Dakota. So what is, how does somebody from South Dakota end up getting involved with the Puerto Rican independence movement? Yes. And that's the, I mean, it's her journey. Her path is so fascinating to me. Um, and that's really the bulk of my dissertation is kind of tracing that path. She made some really um, surprising choices for someone who was raised in a very, very small conservative mining town in South Dakota, in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Um, it's really interesting because she had such a love for her hometown, Terraville, and its surrounding area of the Black Hills. Um, and when she was 11, she learned about the 1876 Sioux Wars. She learned about how there had been the treaty ceding the Black Hills to the Sioux and that upon the discovery of gold, um, the U.S. Army and government revoked the treaty and usurped the territory. And at 11, she found this shocking. Um, there were still quite a few assimilated Sioux in the area, and her father was a Mason, and one of his Masonic brothers was Chief Yellow Robe. And she met Chief Yellow Robe at a celebration called Days of 76. So a celebration of white settlement and white usurpation of the territory in which local Sioux participated. So it was a parade and a rodeo and... Um, you know, a big small town celebration actually in Deadwood. But she started putting two and two together. And that was the beginning of a lifelong process for her of critiquing the failings of U.S. policy, even as she considered herself to be an ardent patriot. Another thing about small town Terraville are um, it was a straight-laced religious community in which women had a very specific role, and that was as wife and mother. And that's what her mother did. Edna Reynolds, Edna Wilmarth Reynolds, had gone to college and become a teacher. 
and stopped teaching when she married Ruth's father, Harry Reynolds. And that was really kind of a model, a template for women in the area at the time. Get some education, teach for a while, either you're going to not get married and continue teaching school children, or you're going to get married and raise your own children. So it was all very child centric, but Ruth started in that path. But when she went to Dakota Wesleyan college in Mitchell, South Dakota, she just found a whole new world of her own intellect and she became involved in global affairs and she became involved in pacifism to a small degree. When she graduated, and I think it was 1937, um, jobs were hard to come by because of the Great Depression. And she wound up taking a job teaching in a town called Parmalee, which was on the Rosebud Indian Reservation. But Parmalee was primarily a town of white Anglo-European Americans. And she taught high school there for the white residents of Parmalee. But that also awakened her to more issues of inequity and injustice. And she began to feel this stirring that going home or meeting a man and becoming a wife and mother, that she, that path wasn't for her. She wanted to do something that was more meaningful in terms, I think also this is, this, we start speaking about her ambition here. I think she really was ambitious and she wanted to be known. I think that she felt she had an intellect that deserved to be shared. And so this really was bucking against um, what her parents thought she should be doing, what her sisters were doing, and what most other of the young women of the Black Hills of South Dakota were doing. Yeah, I can imagine that that would create some sort of a, well, yeah, it'd be very different. Did that, was there any kind of tension? I mean, did she, was there any record of her running into some kind of any conflicts with, because uh, the yeah the black hills of of you know the, the dakotas in the 19 teens 1920s is probably not too much of a hotbed of uh you know radical <laughs> gender gender issues and inequality and all of that i mean there is some level of that in the in kind of that middle west area there are some pockets of populism and all that that allowed for greater rights for women and all that but i imagine probably she's she's probably going a bit farther than that yeah, because this wasn't an agricultural area, too. So um, that whole populist impulse, I think, um, kind of bypassed Terraville because it was a company town for Homestake Mining Company. This was a Hearst wow. Mining Company. So it was very, very much a company town. And um, they benefited from the philanthropy of the Hearsts. Phoebe Apperson Hearst is a name that still resonates throughout the Black Hills. Um, but... It was, yes, it was very constrictive in terms of uh, gender norms for, for women. Um, and I think it's in, this is one of Ruth's great dichotomies because she felt so connected to 
the Black Hills, so connected to her home of Terraville, so connected to her parents. She loved them deeply and they loved her back, even as she made confounding choice after confounding choice. But there was something stirring in her that wanted more. And so I'm guessing that in this desire to want more, she she probably had to leave, I'm assuming. And so you mentioned, uh, I believe the next stage she went to Northwestern or what, 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 how did she escape from this and where did she go? Yes. So um, after teaching for uh, for two years, teaching high school for two years in, in South Dakota, um, she realized that she wanted more. And initially what she thought was that higher, a, an advanced degree would bring her what she was looking for. So she followed one of her mentors from Dakota Wesleyan to Northwestern to pursue a master's degree in English. And I think her parents were actually quite supportive of this move. They signed on a loan to um, help fund her schooling and I think uh, particularly her mother, Edna, um, was thinking um, this is this is a, a path that is unusual but very respectable for a woman to take and for her to support her daughter into a career possibly as a college professor, I think was very uh, gratifying to her. The thought of that was very gratifying. But when she got to Northwestern. She was taking these classes. Um, in her papers, there's one paper that she wrote that is just, it starts with the Langston Hughes poem um, that articulates a critique of America. And it's a critique that she would really hold to for the rest of her life, that that America was not living up to its founding ideals. So this is the way that she could identify completely as a patriot, but yet feel pulled towards activism to right the inequities and the injustices um, that still existed. So concurrent with this pull to social activism and this, she did not want to teach. She did not want to teach anymore. So she was trying to figure out what she wanted to do next while she was um, attending the United Methodist Church in Evanston where a fairly renowned Methodist preacher of the day, so this is um, the late 1930s as World War II is um, beginning and U.S. involvement is seeming almost inevitable to some, Ernest Fremont Tittle was preaching pacifism, the traditional doctrine of pacifism as espoused by the leading international pacifist organization, the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And as Ruth was seeking, I think that the doctrine of pacifism and particularly its rigidity, pacifists are absolute in their beliefs that war is bad and a pacifist life means opposing war and violence in any form. And I think that that really appealed to her. So she started identifying as a pacifist first and foremost. And from, I'm pretty sure it was from Tittle, learned about a course in, quote, total pacifism, end quote, 
to be held in New York City. And she signed up for that course. And in the summer of 1941, she went to Harlem in New York City and joined this course in total pacifism that was led by a man named J. Holmes Smith, who had founded the Harlem Ashram. I mean, that's quite a journey just by itself, going from a fairly conservative South Dakota to New York City during World War II and joining this uh, this ashram. So tell us a little bit about, about this, the ashram itself. What was life like? Um, how did she fit in with the ashram and what you know, what, what was she doing there? Right. So first, let me tell you that this was um, a complete shock to her family. First of all, she decided not to pursue the traditional path, which would have been to go teach English at a college. Um, second of all, she she went for the training and decided to stay and join as a permanent member of the Harlem Ashram. So what the Harlem Ashram was, um, was this idea of, there were a bunch of missionaries, um, J. Holmes Smith, who founded the ashram, Ralph Templin, E. Stanley Jones, and they had gone on missionary work to India where they met and became profoundly influenced by uh, the Mahatma Gandhi. And they were impressed with the spiritual aspect of his movement. They were impressed with the social justice aspect of it. And they were impressed with the ascetic aspect of it. So they returned, they were actually kicked out of, um, of India by the British empire for uh, throwing in with the independentists. And so when they came back, they had this idea, mostly Smith had this idea to start an experiment of an American ashram based on Christianity and social justice. And so he chose to set it up on 125th Street and 5th Avenue, which is smack dab in the middle of Harlem, New York. Smith tried to put together a group that would live uh, communally and model ascetic living, spiritual living, communal living, and with a focus on nonviolent direct action for social justice. So he tried to put together um, a group that was men and women, married and single, families with kids, um, black, white, and Indian Americans. So this really shocked Ruth's family back home, that she was living with other single men and other single women and in this interracial community. It, they could not understand it. They were frightened for her. They begged her to come home. Um, but what's interesting from the letters is that the love and support never flagged, never. Even as Ruth began to dig in deeper and deeper to the work of the ashram. So the ashram, they would eat um, lentils and kale, somebody remembered, a lot of lentils and kale, very ascetic. Um, 
some of the people that she was roommates with include included James Farmer, which is why, and she went on to become very close friends with his wife, Lula, which is why um, those papers were in his archive. Um, Polly Murray, the noted lawyer, was another one. And so Ruth really threw herself into this. And they opened an offshoot, uh, what they called the Ashram Junior, um, on 113th Street, which was smack dab in the middle of what they called Spanish Harlem. It's East Harlem, which had been recently primarily an Italian immigrant community and was um, slowly kind of welcoming waves of Puerto Rican immigrants. So they would hold a play street for the kids of the neighborhood um, kind of caretaking after school before parents got home from work. So they would do organized activities and um, games and different kind of things like that. So she was part of this Ashram Junior. Um, they were also very involved with uh, Black civil rights. And A. Philip Randolph was, he's the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters and the leader of the March on Washington movement of the 1940s. And he was a board member of the Harlem Ashram. And so they kind of tried to, without being a part of his movement, because he wanted to keep it, um, he wanted to keep it black. And um, there were many non-black participants in the Harlem Ashram and residents of the Harlem Ashram. So um, they tried to kind of form um, a separate group that would then support A. Philip Randolph and the March on Washington movement. And indeed, they marched from Harlem to Washington um, a couple, well, at least once. It was There was one really big one. And I know they traveled there a couple more times to demonstrate in Washington on behalf of Randolph and the March on Washington movement. They also made a concerted effort to desegregate the YMCA. They picketed the YMCA. They embarked on uh, propaganda and letter writing campaigns to YMCA management and uh, successfully desegregated the YMCA. So Ruth was involved in all of that. She was teaching Sunday school in um, poorer neighborhoods. She was um, spending time in the Bronx and a lot of time in Harlem. And she was going to lectures of pacifists and civil rights activists. So it was a very, very heady time for her. Yeah. And so you mentioned that one of the things that she got involved with eventually is Puerto Rican independence. And so let's let's talk about that movement a little bit, and then we'll kind of rejoin Ruth's story. But let's so let's let's take a, a little detour here and and talk about Puerto Rican independence. What's what's happening with that? Yeah. So just a little bit of background information is that um, you know the reach of the Spanish Empire from the 1500s um, through the 1800s was enormous, and um, during the 1800s, we see this kind of wave of independence movements and revolutions throughout the Spanish colonies in the Americas, um, particularly South America. And so there was this wave of these revolutions and the establishment of independent sovereign nations. And that ideology was, um, was really 
kind of catching fire throughout a lot of different Spanish colonies. And so really what a lot of people refer to as the Spanish-American War, um, which I'm kind of on a on a crusade here to get people to just call it the War of 1898, because it was, in many ways, um, it was the, the War of Cuban Independence. Um, but because of Puerto Rico's involvement and Guam and the Philippines, um, it's not just Cuba. So it involves Spain the Empire of Spain, it involves the United States, and it involves a lot of Spanish colonies who believe that they are fighting for independence and believe that the United States is coming to lend their support for independence. Um, so the independence movement in Puerto Rico dates back to wanting independence from Spain. And in 1868, there was um, an uprising in the mountain town of Lares, in which a group of independence activists declared Puerto Rico to be its own sovereign nation. Um, they call this the uh, El Grito de Lares, which is like the cry or the shout from Lares, the shout of independence, the cry of independence. Um, that was in 1868. And that uprising was quashed by the Spanish Empire, but it opened slowly and in fits and starts um, the possibility of negotiating more autonomy for Puerto Rico. And it should be noted that this was this movement was primarily of the um, more elites in the society, the landowners, the hacendados, um, the people who own the uh, coffee plantations. Um, or the the um, successful merchants. This independence movement was kind of about their economic independence from having to pay into the Spanish Empire. And so when we get to 1898, we get a political and economic elite who... I would say that there's a it, there's never been a unified agreement for independence, but there was a very very strong movement and widespread um, independence ideology going on. Um, and so, in 1898, there the once um, the U.S. kind of establishes its presence, um, the movement to annex. Puerto Rico and to define its relationship, its status relative to the United States um, becomes inflamed. And there were three main positions. One, that Puerto Rico should be completely independent, a sovereign nation. Two, that it should become a state of the United States. And three, that it should have some kind of connection to the United States um, without complete independence and without complete attachment to the United States. And interestingly, today in 2020, um, the status debate continues to be focused around those three issues. A lot of political intrigue and a lot of um, kind of unilateral and um, absolute 
decisions by the United States led Puerto Rico to become annexed as a territory in this kind of ambiguous um, status. And the push for independence kind of starts to ebb away. I think it's also interesting to note that in my research, I found that a lot of the working class Puerto Ricans, um, those who had been kind of exploited by the plantation and hacienda owners, um, they were very intrigued by the Americanization efforts that went on in um, the early 20th century. So this was kind of um, this cultural tutelage where they wanted to establish English as the primary language and they wanted to set up um, schools and kind of Americanize the island. And the Puerto Rican elite leadership were pretty against this. They all spoke Spanish. They all had their culture and their heritage and their religion, which was primarily Catholic. And this Protestant nation is coming in and insisting that they um, conform to American standards. They didn't like that. But on the flip side of that, the working class, the workers, um, primarily rural workers, were very intrigued by this. They were seeing opportunities for education that they hadn't seen before. So they were seeing opportunity in Americanization, um, which eventually would turn out to be a pipe dream for them. So this is where we move to um, Albizu Campos. So Pedro Albizu Campos, he's the, uh, the still kind of the figurehead. Um, one of my professors said he's like the George Washington of Puerto Rico. And I don't think it's a completely accurate um, comparison, except for the fact that they are both revered as um, figureheads of patriotism and identity for um, for each. Pedro Albizu Campos is probably the biggest name, in at least in the 20th century Puerto Rican independence movement. And, and he plays a surprisingly large role in the, in the story of um, Ruth Reynolds. And so can you tell us a little bit about him? And then we'll kind of, and then we'll move into talking about how he and uh, Ruth intersected. But first off, let's hear more about him. What, what's his background? How did he come to be the uh, kind of the figurehead for the independence movement for Puerto Rico? So, Pedro Albizu Campos was born either in 1893 or 1891, um, and he was born out of wedlock. And apparently his father was pretty well-to-do, and his mother was a domestic worker. Um, she's often described as a mestiza, which is mixed race, and she pretty much raised... Pedro Albizu Campos on her own. And when I say on her own, it's part of a really close-knit neighborhood, a barrio in Ponce, Puerto Rico. And Ponce had long been um, a hotbed of independence activity. Um, his father remained in his life, and um, Albizu Campos kind of grew up um, go into mass every week and um, he was exceptionally intelligent 
Um, he was a young child when United States troops marched through his town. Um, so his subsequent schooling would have been part of the Americanization plan. So he was undoubtedly influenced by that for a while. Um, when he graduated in 1912, he got a scholarship to attend college uh, at the University of Vermont. So he came to mainland America and did extremely well and soon began attending Harvard, where he was not just the first Puerto Rican, but the first Latin American to graduate from that institution. One interesting thing about this um, status debate in terms of Puerto Rico is that in 1917, as World War I and as American participation in World War I was on the horizon, um, President Woodrow Wilson passed a law called the Jones-Shafroth Act, and that act gave citizenship, a kind of proscribed American citizenship to Puerto Ricans, a citizenship that did not allow them many of the uh, voting privileges that other Americans had, but did allow them to be drafted into the military. And so Albizu Campos left his studies as World War I started ramping up and joined the army, served in World War I, and then when the war ended, he resumed his studies at Harvard. He goes back to Puerto Rico in 1921 and starts to understand a little bit more that the governor, who is to that point always appointed by the United States, by the president or Congress, is always an outsider, a white mainlander, and is appointed to govern Puerto Rico. And um, when he returned, there was a particularly bad governor in place um, named Montgomery Riley. And his kind of ham-fisted techniques and this push for independence that's going on throughout Latin America, this kind of leads Albizu Campos more to an ideology of independence. And then as the Great Depression starts hitting and as uh, the workers of the island are realizing that this Americanization and the influx of American businesses have not provided the opportunity, have not their, the Americanization educational efforts have not really provided any opportunity. Um, it just is a real uh, point at which independence the idea that Puerto Rico should be independent flares back up. And this time it flares up across the class line. At this point, you've got university professors and you've got businessmen and plantation owners, but you've also got the working class. And Pedro Albizu Campos is a big part of that because he goes out um, giving speeches and raising support for the idea of independence. And I've heard one recording of him speaking and to say that he is a fiery orator, that's the, the, what you usually hear about him. He was a fiery orator. And to say that is really something of an understatement. The passion, the dedication, um, it just comes across 
uh, in an electrifying manner. So he's out speaking and speaking against the United States government. He His position was that because of an autonomy agreement that had been negotiated between Puerto Rico and Spain in 1897, the year before the United States came in and took over, um, that they are the they are an invading and occupying force. That Puerto Rico is a sovereign nation, and that the uh, Yankee imperialists needed to be gone. So he starts really. Um, he takes over the uh, a political party at the time, and it stops. It's the um, the Nationalist Party of Puerto Rico. Um, he takes that over. And from that point on, it really starts acting less as a political party and more as a movement because Albizu Campos believes that participating in a political or governmental process run by the United States is invalid. And so he refuses to participate politically. In the meantime, a friend of his, a colleague of his, someone who shares his belief in independence for Puerto Rico, Luis Munoz Marin, um, follows the more political path and starts campaigning for the votes of the campesinos. So Munoz Marin is working within the established political system Albizu Campos is working outside of it. And I feel like in many ways, Albizu Campos wound up inadvertently campaigning for Munoz Marin because his rhetoric of independence, of pride and patriotism in Puerto Rico, um, Munoz Marin was kind of saying the same thing. And what these uh, campesinos, what the rural workers had was their vote. And so... um, Munoz Marin starts a great political rise and um, Albizu Campos starts increasingly um, advocating or increasingly relying on popular demonstrations that are not simply speaking engagements, but are, um, are protest demonstrations. And um one in particular in um, 1932 or 33, I think 1933, um, got out of control and the crowd spurred on by Albizu Campos rushed into um, the Capitol building where a banner a banister gave way and um, a, somebody died in this subsequent crush and fall. Um, so Albizu Campos was arrested, and this is really where he becomes the fig- this outsider figurehead of the independence movement. There were a lot of other independence leaders. There were a lot in different political parties, but this is where he becomes kind of this um, this independent revolutionary figurehead advocating not just Puerto Rican independence as a status, but Puerto Rican individuality and pride and patriotism. 
yeah, even like I said before, even today, I think we a lot of people kind of associate him with. I mean, he is kind of the face of the movement. So, how did he? How did he intersect with uh, with Ruth Reynolds? Yeah, so um, he was arrested in the 1930s, um, kind of on sedition charges, and sent to the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. Um, but during his trial, an East Harlem resident who became a congressman, Vito Marcantonio, um, became his lawyer and also began a lifelong commitment to the idea of independence for Puerto Rico. And I should just say that besides Vito Marcantonio, I think Ruth Reynolds is probably the um, the only other um, mainlander, Anglo mainlander, um, who really never wavered in their support of this cause. So Vito Marcantonio was friends with Albizu Campos. He had been to visit him in the penitentiary. And when it was time for his release, he found him a place in, um, they always call it a hospital, but I think it was more of an uh, assisted living facility. It was one of um, the Mother Cabrini's places in New York and Albizu Campos had been having some heart problems. He was not well. And so he goes to New York and kind of begins to work from his hospital bed um, to rebuild his support in New York. He was barred from going back to Puerto Rico by the terms of his release. And so in the hospital, he's working with other, um, his supporters and colleagues and friends um, in the in the Puerto Rican community in New York city and especially in Harlem. Can you characterize their, their relationship? What was the, what were they just coworkers? Was there more than that? How, how would you characterize their, their interactions in, uh, in Harlem? First, he met uh, Jay Holmes Smith, the head of the Harlem Ashram. And the idea of Puerto Rican independence resonated with Smith because he had been an anti-imperialist in India and was still kind of part of this um, American free India movement. So those two things really seemed to dovetail for him. And so he directed the work of the Harlem Ashram to include the issue of Puerto Rican independence. And one... Um, they, different independentistas came to the Harlem Ashram and talked to them and um, spoke with them. And one in particular, Julio Pinto Gandia, asked Ruth to come meet Albizu Campos. And when she went to meet him, um, she was not the only one to relate this. Sitting in his hospital bed and kind of, I would say, playing to his audience. He was a fiery orator when he was on the on stage, but from his hospital bed, he was intense and soft-spoken and um, very, very interested in who was coming to see him and what what their motivations were and what their background was and um, what they could do for him. And he got, he, Smith started to believe that he was the Gandhi of Puerto Rico, um, which he most certainly was not. Um, this kind of demeanor 
he won uh, Pearl S. Buck over, who met him at his at his bedside and found him um, similar to Smith. Found him to be almost saintly. They said in uh, I'm not sure she said that, but uh, maybe her husband did. But almost saintly in his demeanor. Um, and so Ruth found the exact same thing. But what happened with Ruth is that she was already starting to feel maybe a little dissatisfied with being Smith's acolyte and doing work that he came up with. And she was looking for something very specific to distinguish herself and give her life meaning. So she, after meeting Albisu Campos, thought to herself and said, well, the Black Civil Rights Movement has so many organizations dedicated to it. And um, I don't, here in New York, I don't really see a way to apply myself to the issues that um, indigenous Americans, Native American Indians are facing. And so she really saw this as the way to, um, to both do something worthwhile and to make a name for herself. So, and because she was an absolutist of the highest degree, she makes a very conscious decision. This is my life's work. This is what I do now. And sets about studying Puerto Rican history and learning from Albisu Campos and going to the library and putting things together. And she and Smith decide that they are going to try and get uh, an organization of notables and then try and build it into a mass organization of mainland Americans. So non-Puerto Ricans, mainland Americans who um, the organization would work for Puerto Rican independence. And that was the American League for Puerto Rican independence. And um, it started off like gangbusters, but immediately started to fizzle. So she's getting involved in Puerto Rican independence movement. She's learning all about Puerto Rico. I imagine the next step is probably to go to Puerto Rico, right? Uh, yes, exactly. Yep. And so what did she? So tell us about that trip. Well, well I guess it's probably more than a trip. But let's talk about that move. So um, where did? So obviously she went to Puerto Rico. What was she doing? What happened when she got there? And how did she kind of continue to advocate for Puerto Rican independence while she was there? Yeah, so she actually made two trips. So she went first in 1945 and um, with um, with introductions from Albisu Campos, she fell right into um, the still active independence movement within Puerto Rico. So she met independentistas, um, she befriended them, she stayed with them, she learned from them, but she also was able, because she had this kind of organization behind her, it was really never quite cohered as an actual organization, but the American League for Puerto Rico's independence um, gave her kind of entree into speaking with um, with governmental officials as well. And she came back from that trip understanding that there was not a unified vision for Puerto Rican independence, but still believing that that was the right thing, still believing Albisu Campos was right and deciding to work for him. So to continue her work, she actually went and spoke at uh, Millard Tidings. Senator Millard Tidings had um, proposed a well, he proposed numerous bills for Puerto Rico's independence, and so did Vito Marcantonio. And so she addressed 
um, a congressional committee, which was certainly um, an exciting, momentous experience for her. Um, and her relationship with Albisu Campos deepened. It was a really mutually respectful friendship. And there's a tendency to think, well, oh, she was under his sway. And I think only to the extent that he was very charismatic, but she had a mind of her own and she chose his cause and to help him. A lot of people assume, well, of course, they had to be involved in a sexual relationship, but I just do not believe that that is true because the second time she goes to Puerto Rico in 1948, um, uh, Albizu Campos' wife is there and she and Ruth become close friends and lifelong friends. So when she goes in 1948, the purpose is to investigate the suppression of student protests, student independence protests. Um, they had, Albizu Campos had returned to the island in 1947 and the students at the University of Puerto Rico had invited him to come and speak. And the head of the university denied their request and it sparked a major protest. Um, and it was really quashed with uh, police and um, to some extent violence. And they shut down the campus rather than allow the students to reconvene. So it was a very repressive measure, very much intended to stifle independence activity. It indicates clearly that Albisu's return was cause for alarm for, um, for the Puerto Rican government. And by that point, the Puerto Rican government, the rising star in Puerto Rican government was working very collaboratively with the U.S. Congress. And that was um, the main figure in all of that was Luis Munoz Marin, who um, who repudiated independence slowly but surely and um, was embarking on a plan to recreate Puerto Rico in a way that um, had, that he, I think, honestly believed would work, but um, would give him a lot of individual power, yet leave plenary power of governing the island of Puerto Rico in the hands of the United States government. So Albizu Campos was using his um, same old tactics of going out and speaking and drumming up support for independence, continuing to work outside of the political system. And when Ruth gets there, she falls right into the middle of it. And she was investigating the student situation and wound up writing um, a report about it that became published after her death as uh, the book Campus in Bondage, which is still available. Um, and when she finished that, she stayed on the island. And this is a confounding choice to her family. This is a confounding choice to historians who are um, trying to understand her position because while she's there, Albisu Campos is very actively stockpiling weapons. Um, and so for a pacifist, it is really a complicated thing to comprehend 
her motivations in terms of befriending and supporting an activity that is so clearly non-pacifist. Okay, so something's happening. <laughs> She's uh, moving away from pacifism, seemingly. And then uh, something happens in October of 1950. What, what happened and what was the fallout from it? Yes. And, you know, it's interesting that you said that she's moving away from pacifism because she never felt that she was. She mm. didn't engage in any violent behavior. So she, to her to her dying day, um, insisted that she was pacifist. But there's this kind of offshoot of pacifism called radical pacifism, where those pacifists agree that they can support non-pacifist causes um, um, as long as they remain pacifist and don't get involved. And that's this this line that she was trying to toe in Puerto Rico. She was in the uh, the headquarters of the Nationalist Party every day. She was staying with different independentistas, different members of the Nationalist Party. She was befriending them. She saw Albizu Campos regularly. She was at almost every one of his rallies. She was in the thick of things. But I think she was very intentionally keeping um, uh, that element of plausible deniability. I think, I think, I suspect that she had plans to write about this, that she was enjoying this, um, this being in the middle of all of this, even though she wasn't a part of it. So I think she kind of envisioned herself as kind of an embedded journalist who was going to be able to tell this story from um a unique perspective. And the story was as um, kind of uh, Munoz Marin's government. So by this point, um, he's become governor of Puerto Rico and they're fighting to push through this, um, this, well, first of all, they passed a law that is modeled on the Smith Act um, in the United States, which the Smith Act was widely used to uh, silence and sweep leftists and labor leaders. Um, and a lot of the arrests and um, convictions on the Smith Act were deemed unconstitutional years later. But they've got their own little Smith Act, the Ley de la Mordaza, the gag law, they called it. And um, that comes, that's passed in, uh, in 1948. And so between that law and Munoz Marin trying to work to get his vision pushed through where Puerto Rico would become a status relative to the United States that was really unprecedented. And that's called Estado Libre Asociado or Free Associated State. And um, he insisted that this would be different than a colony. And um, he insisted that the economic benefits would be enormous, that Puerto Ricans could keep their identity. Um, and he's trying so hard to push that. Then clearly, Albizu Campos is now his nemesis, his polar opposite. And a lot, he uses the gag law and he uses the power of the government to try and quash these um, this movement that Albizu is leading again. And they've got secret police following all Albizu Campos everywhere and following different members and following Ruth and tracking Ruth's um, movements, even though she 
never joined the party, never pledged herself as an active member. Um, she was really in the thick of things. And Albisu stockpiling weapons. And this is where um, I think um, you've got two, two views of this. Um, he and Ruth would insist that these weapons were meant as a defensive measure, um, that they saw, well, first of all, the, the government had opened fire on independence protesters in, in uh, Ponce um, earlier in the 1930s. And so they contended that they were stockpiling weapons as a defensive measure against what they were sure was coming, which was another Ponce massacre, another violent attempt to quash the independentists. Um, the other side of that and what Munoz Marin would claim is that they were planning a violent overthrow of the government and a revolution and a coup. Um, so there's no doubt that there were arms involved. There's no doubt that there was violence involved. But what happens in October of 1950, I feel, is really the culmination of this game of brinksmanship between the two parties, each trying to provoke the other one into making the first move to justify then their actions. Um, there's a shootout kind of um, right outside of Ponce between independentists and um, and the police, the guard, and this prompts a sweep. And it's interesting because it's not just a sweep of Albisu Campos and the Nationalist Party. It's a sweep of um, political opposition to Luis Munoz Marin. But it winds up really focused on independence and the Nationalist Party, and they wind up um, picking up Albisu Campos, and they also wind up going and rousting Ruth out of bed in the middle of the night and arresting her and taking her to jail as well. She was very confident that she had done nothing wrong, and therefore she could not be held or charged or tried or convicted, which I think was a little naive when, when you're looking at um, when you're looking at the times, because what you've got in, you've got um, McCarthyism on the rise in the United States and um, its adherence to the Smith Act. And then you've got the Little Smith Act, which is what she was charged on and a Puerto Rican government that's, that's working with the support of the United States government um, unashamedly without reservation and so this is the, so we're talking about the violence in October of 1950. Um, from the American perspective, this is also about the same time that there's an attempt on uh, Harry Truman's uh, life, right? Isn't there a shootout among Puerto Rican nationalists outside of, uh, what was it, Blair House in Washington, D.C.? I believe that, I believe that was in November of 1950, right? Is it, so this is, this, this violence is not strictly contained just to Puerto Rico. This is kind of overflowing into the U.S. also, the mainland U.S. Yes, actually, um, that was really the event that prompted the sweep. So there were outbreaks of violence in many different places. That attempt on uh, Truman's life was, um, was undertaken by two members of 
the Nationalist Party. Um, so they're they are acolytes of Albizu Campos. It's um, Oscar Collazo and Griselio Torresola, um, who Ruth knew and was actually very close with um, with uh, Torresola's sister Doris. She wound up going to jail with her. Um, so they opened fire on Blair House, and the justification was that the United States was a occupying force of Puerto Rico with, as a sovereign nation. And so as commander in chief, uh, Truman was a fair target of war. So this really wound up um, kicking the sweep into gear. And this is when, um, uh, this is when um, Ruth and Albizu Campos and, many others were um, brought into jail and held for weeks and weeks without a charge. Eventually, um, Ruth would be transferred from the jail in San Juan, which is known as La Princesa, to um, a facility, a women's facility in Arecibo, um, where she would wind up spending 19 months of her life. Um, they kept her kind of incommunicado for a while, but eventually allowed her to um, have visitors. And interestingly, the head of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, or one of the kind of um, two main leaders of it, uh, A.J. Musty, um, flew down. So she insisted that she had not repudiated her pacifism and that she was not involved in the armed conflict um, and so Musty came, flew down to show his support. Also, the um, the noted lawyer Conrad Lynn, who had walked with her from the Harlem Ashram to Washington um, eight years earlier, flew down to lend his support to her legal team. And she stayed in jail for nineteen months. How did that affect her? How did that affect the? How did that affect her personally, but how did that affect the pacifist community, and how did that affect her commitment to the cause of Puerto Rican independence? Her experience in jail did nothing to diminish her commitment to the cause. Once she chose that cause, um, throughout her entire life, she never wavered from it at all. If anything, it strengthened her relationship with the independence activists with whom she was incarcerated. Um one thing that I think is funny in her writings is that um, the the biggest inconvenience to her was the food. The woman just did not like rice and beans, and rice and beans are a staple of Puerto Rican diet. So she was eating them, eating rice and beans for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and that was probably the worst part of it for her. <laughs> <laughs> Um, she wrote breezy, cheerful messages to her parents who were working really hard and using whatever connections they could um, to try and um, shine a light on her situation and get her some rep some kind of high-level representation and help. But they were doing that, saying that she was going to have to repudiate her cause. And so she just kept saying, no, thank you. I will not be doing that. I will stay in jail for however long I have to. This is my cause. I belong here with others who have been arrested for this. I'm not special. This is what I do. Um, but what's really interesting is that um, as 
Munoz Marin was pushing through the final part of what they call Operation Commonwealth, which was to get that free associated state designation um, for Puerto Rico. Um, As soon as that was secured, the insular court set bail for Ruth and allowed her release pending the appeal of her conviction. So she was released in um, 1952. A couple of independent uh, Nationalist Party members put up her bail. A Nationalist Party member drove to go get her. And she eventually went back to uh, New York, despite the uh, the entreaties from her family that she give up this dangerous work and return to a more traditional life in South Dakota. But she didn't do that. She went back to New York. Um, she had already um, moved out of the Harlem ashram before she went to Puerto Rico. And she and Smith had a terrible falling out because he publicly repudiated her and cast aspersions on her pacifism in a press release to the New York Times after her arrest. So she went back and decided, well, maybe I'll try and get an organization together. Maybe I'll try and um, see how I can help, but I'm going to do this independently. So I'm going to get a job and support myself. And so she did that and stayed in close contact with, um, with Nationalist Party members in New York. And one of those people was Lolita Lebron, um, who was um, who was close enough with Ruth and her friends um, that they would have dinner at each other's houses and they knew each other quite intimately. And so Ruth's pacifism was again tested when Lebron and others that she was very good friends with, like Rafael Cancel Miranda, um, went to Congress and opened fire again. And it was an act, a clear act of kind of, you know, you want to say domestic terrorism, except that independentistas did not consider themselves to be American and the insular cases had said that Puerto Rico was foreign in a domestic sense. So they considered it to be an act of a war that was already in progress, um, but others considered it to be just an unbelievably brutal and dangerous act of violence. Um, And Ruth was, again, finding herself defending violent actions, even while defending her pacifism. She couldn't waver from either. That was her absolutism. She said she was a pacifist. She was a pacifist. She said she supported Puerto Rican independence. She supported Puerto Rican independence. And she worked to try and justify or reconcile those two things and was probably the main tension of her life ever since she met Albizu Campos. And this was a big... Uh, uh, notorious event. The the gunmen were caught and um, incarcerated, convicted quickly. But Ruth did not repudiate them or their actions. And interestingly, neither did A.J. Musty. A.J. Musty, the leader of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, much to the chagrin of his co-leader, John Nevin Sayre, 
um, sent out a memo, kind of a press release memo, urging understanding for the actions of the shooters. So this exacerbated, I mean, there was already kind of a schism between traditional pacifists and radical pacifists. Um, but this action, what happened in Puerto Rico in 1950 and at Blair House in 1950, what happened in Puerto Rico in, in Washington in uh, 1954, and especially Ruth Reynolds, who um, was kind of a um, um, kind of a notable within this, kind of a, a flashpoint in this. Um, she becomes kind of the figurehead for this schism in pacifist communities. Those who can understand the desperation, the desperate measures of a non-pacifist movement and don't support it, but understand it. And those who um, think this has absolutely no place in any kind of pacifist doctrine. I can see that that would be put her in quite a quite a position. And so, how did she continue onward after the attacks on Congress in 1954? In between that and the attempt on on Truman back in 1950, I mean, the the, the cause of Puerto Rican independence is pretty famous and pretty infamous at this point. And so, how does she continue onward? Where does where does she go with it? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. That it's famous and infamous because um, it is. Thanks to 1950 and 1954, it is um, forever wedded uh, to the idea of violence. Um, and Ruth was forever wedded to the idea of pacifism and Puerto Rican independence. So she had to toe a very, very um, thin line there. But she did that. She remained um, a staunch supporter of Albizu Campos and really kind of focused her efforts until his death in 1965 on um, putting together, I think they did two writs of habeas corpus um, and um, going to Puerto Rico to mount demonstrations outside of his jail cell and in front of the government buildings. Um, she was a frequent speaker at independence rallies in Puerto Rico um, a lifelong friend of Albizu Campos's wife, Laura, Doña Laura, um, and just really never gave up her work. She tried to maybe put a, an organization like the American League for Puerto Rico's Independence together, and she referred to it quite often, but there was really no organization. It was just a loose coalition of um, pacifists and other activists who um, agreed to support the cause. And so when she went to Puerto Rico, um, she was usually joined by pacifists, other pacifists of the radical pacifist persuasion. So it's not just Ruth who is, and Musty's another big one. So it's not just Ruth who is kind of towing the line between pacifism and Puerto Rican independence. Um, the, the pacifists who believed in anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism agreed that, um, that they could accept the cause because this was a nation and a people being held in bondage. 
And so you mentioned that uh, Albizu Campos died in uh, 1965. And as we were saying before, he was kind of the face of the independence movement. So what what happened after that? What were uh, Ruth's later years like? Uh, did she stay involved with the movement? Did she move on to other things? Where did she go once the, the face of the movement died? Yes, well, another um, another kind of wave pops up, and there's uh, she tells a great story at uh, um, at Albisu Campos's funeral because a young up and coming um, independence leader named um, Juan Mari Bras um, wanted to speak and kind of wanted uh, at the funeral to take the mantle from Albisu Campos um, and wear it himself, but. Uh, I think Ruth, Ruth says Doña Laura did this, but I think Ruth had a lot to do with saying, no, this is not about him. And Albizu Campos would never have, have chosen him as a successor. So for the rest of her life, through these different ways, because the independence movement is still alive today, there are still people advocating for the independence of Puerto Rico, just as there are still um, statehooders. And there are still people who believe that a connection to the United States is the best way to go. It just needs to be um, revised and refined, maybe. But Ruth called herself an albisuista. So she adopted his principles and whatever the principles. So there were there were members of the Communist Party who were independentists and she tolerated them, but since they were not albisuistas, she couldn't fall in completely with them. So she maintained his principles until her own death in uh, 1989 and was really a frequent speaker at rallies in New York. And um, it was during that time when she was speaking at a rally that um, a student from Hunter College uh, approached her and said, um, wow, you've been so involved with all of this and you knew Albisu Campos so well, we should get an oral history on you. And so for the next two years, they met frequently and recorded hundreds of hours of conversation. Well, that's great. And this is a, uh, a fascinating topic and it should make, it sounds like a really interesting dissertation. Is this something that you're still working on or is this something that you've uh, finished already? Are you done with this program or this project? Um, not exactly. I'm uh, going to, I'm spending this summer working on my book proposal and I hope to publish it within the next couple of years. Oh, that'd be great. And once you do publish it, you'll have to come back and we can talk more about this. That'll be awesome. Okay. That sounds great. Okay. Well, do you have any last points that you wanted to uh, cover with, uh, with Ruth here before we uh, call it a day? I think I'd just like to mention um, that her choices and her actions, um, her family never understood them. And both of her sisters took more um, traditional approaches, but there was something about that family bond that never frayed. And it's just wonderful. And so even um, Ruth kind of felt a little defensive when she visited her sisters um, because they, they were very judgmental of her choices. But she made this really concerted effort to cultivate loving relationships with her nieces and nephews. And um, I was lucky enough to get to talk to most of them in, um, in doing this, this project. A lot of them kind of only knew about it in 
kind of a, they, they never really spoke about her incarceration that much. So to a lot of them, she was just the kind of glamorous aunt from New York who sent packages from fancy New York department stores back to the Black Hills um, and visited um, and took them all out to dinner and just loved them unconditionally. And so I think it really speaks to her humanity that um, that that she never lost the love and support of her family, and that she worked so hard to cultivate and keep that going even after her parents died with her nieces and nephews. That's interesting. Yeah, that's um interesting way to kind of round out her her childhood and her, her family issues. That's that's great. So this is a really interesting uh topic. So thanks for uh, stopping by and talking to us today about it. Well, thank you, Rob. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments on this or any other podcasts, please send a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Karen Sieber, I'm Rob Denning. Happy November.